But Paceline is supported by LEL Cycling. The coast is calling. LEL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LEL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now on to the show. This time on the Pace Line, we do the bicycle hokey pokey. When I ride, I don't think I'm going to put my left foot out front. I just put my left foot out front, right? I, I, I put the natural foot out front. And I had to think about it for a second and actually sort of stand and like, oh, okay, yep, my, yep, it's my left foot. And we wrap things up with a sound you've never heard on any bicycle podcast. The podcast on two wheels, the official podcast of Red Kite Prayer with Patrick, Hottie, and me, Fatty. This is show number 84, which means just 16 more till we reach 100, at which point we double our advertising rates. Oh, I thought we were going to burst into flames. (laughs) No? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Doubling our advertising rates would not really be super significant from what I understand. (laughs) Every little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, we got to pay for the mic somehow, right? Guys, uh, the very important question. uh, Who's on first? Yeah, the very important question. Who is on first? It's the new segment that I introduced last week is a raging success. Uh, a lot of people are interested in answering stupid questions, as it turns out. Um, last week, we started this new segment where we ask very tricky, sophisticated questions in the name of <clears throat> scientific research about cycling culture and riding techniques. And we asked this question. When you're on your bike, descending down a straight section, which foot do you most often have out? front and the options are left right i switch it up and i don't even know and the responses surprised me i expected that most people would be like me that is left foot out front and i thought that that would be the simple easy normal way to do things because when i learned to ride a bike of course i learned with a coaster brake and so I wanted my best foot, the foot that makes, you know, that is best at micro-controlling things, to be ready to activate the coaster brake, right? So put the right foot back. Um, and, you know, therefore, left foot out front. As it turns out, though... Hang 38, on. Hang, hang on. You, you honestly, at the age of six or whatever, consciously thought about which foot should be forward? Not Are you consciously. making a- no, no, not consciously. I just, you know, you use the foot that is best at doing stuff to to do the stuff that needs to be done. In other words, mm-hmm. I kick with my right foot. I br- and I use and I use my right foot to 
activate the coaster brake. Yeah, it's like so the first sure. time. You, yeah, it's like the first time you throw a baseball or a football. Somebody hands you the yeah. ball and you go, you put it in one of your hands and go, okay, here it goes. <laughs> it's just yeah. your dominant side, whatever that might be. Okay, so this is post-event analysis that we're talking about. I I, yes. I thought you were trying to make the case that you were an analytical person at six. I mean, in your case, Fatty, you may have been, but okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, please continue. No, I, I I I am interested, of course, in the in hearing your which foot you put out front, as well as if you have a reason why you think. But let me go. Let's do the numbers first. Thirty-eight percent chose left. 36% chose right. And I, not really knowing exactly how these things work, I think that's pretty close to within the margin of error, that it's almost, uh, you know, uh, essentially the same number of each. And this is 516 responses, by the way. 10% of the respondents said, I switch it up, meaning they're equally comfortable left or right out front, and kudos to them. Mm. Um yeah, I, I want to be equally comfortable, but I still feel a little awkward with the right foot out front. And then 16% replied, I don't even know. And I put that out there because that last one, when I wrote the question, because I had to think about it for a second. When I ride, I don't think I'm going to put my left foot out front. I just put my left foot out front, right? I, I, I put the natural foot out front. And... I had to think about it for a second and actually sort of stand and like, oh, okay, yep, my, yep, it's my left foot. So I don't, I don't think it's really all that weird for someone to not necessarily know right off the bat which foot huh. they put out front. So um, I, I will say that both my wife and I are right-handed, but while I put my left foot out front, she puts her right foot out front. Um, neither of us snowboard uh, or really skateboard. And so I, it's hard to say whether we both have a tendency or one of us has a tendency to be more goofy-footed, whatever that means. But I am curious, you know, if you have, uh, you know, which foot do you put out front and why? Hadi, you said last week that you would explain this week. So I'm going to hold you to that. Totally easy. Okay. I bat right. I play golf right. When I skateboarded, I skateboarded what would be non-goofy foot or with my left foot forward. Mm -hmm. So naturally, my left foot goes forward without thinking about it. Naturally, it goes forward when I'm descending essentially straight down a hill. Now, should the trail turn or should the road turn, obviously pedals start dropping. We could start making a left turn, the right pedal drops, the left foot comes up high and vice versa. Now, if I'm doing the hokey pokey and I put my right foot in and my right foot out, the whole game changes. <laughs> and that could happen at any moment. I didn't moment. see that coming from you. <laughs> well played. Okay. I like that. How about you, Patrick? Uh, well, as I explained last week, uh, I'm a regular footer. That's what we call it. Uh, I've known that for quite some time. You know, skaters would talk about this because surfers would talk about it. And it's a thing with surfers because of the way most waves break. And so if you're a regular footer, you face the wave the way most waves break. Um, and if you're uh, a goofy footer, it means your back is to the wave. And so with surfers, they would make fun of goofy footers. That's why they called it goofy. And so, you know, because you stand on a skateboard much the way you stand on a, on a surfboard, 
it became a point of conversation among skaters as well. And so I've known since pre-adolescence that I was a regular footer. The funny thing is, I actually started out as a goofy footer, and a buddy of mine was like, no, do it this way. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know any better, so I switched to regular, and I've been regular ever since. But I've always naturally put my left foot forward when descending. If I put my right foot forward, say something happens uh, in the middle of a mountain bike descent, and for whatever reason, to get pedals out of the way probably, I have to put my right foot forward, it's so alien to me that I get this immediate destruction of all confidence and think, oh, I'm going down. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go down. Here it comes. I, I usually don't, but uh, it's really profoundly unnatural for me to have my right foot forward. Hmm. Very interesting. So all three of us do the left foot forward. All three of your paceline hosts are left foot forward people. Um, which is interesting to me because I would have thought that uh, with the percentages that this poll showed that at least one of us would have been right foot forward. But all three of us, I assume, put the outside foot down when turning, right? Well, duh. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you, you generally want to live through the event. <laughs> sure, but is go and, go and watch a trail. And there are lots of people who aren't necessarily putting the inside foot down, but are still holding it the three and nine instead of putting the outside foot down. Sure, sure. And under under a lot of circumstances, it's actually better to keep your cranks level through turns than it is to put the outside foot down. Really? Really? Yeah. Name one. Yeah. Trying to think of one. (laughs) Well, just there are a lot of turns where people will put the outside foot down when it's just not that necessary. The the turn isn't that tight, um, you know, and for for reasons of speed and aerodynamics uh, and ultimately actually control, you've got better control when your cranks are parallel to the ground. Hmm. Yeah. Wild stuff. Mm. Yeah. Says hey, who. Are we talking are we talking about road or mountain here or both? Uh-huh. Because I both. Okay. I picture both and that, but I mean yeah. I like to weight that outside foot because I feel I can I can grab an edge better. I mean I always like it, especially mountain biking to skiing, where you're trying to grab an edge to yeah. to execute mm-hmm. a turn. And to help do that, I like to apply force to the edge of the tires. And putting that outside foot down helps me do that. So, also, not tilting my body with the bike, but in other words, forcing weight down from a more perpendicular position uh, allows yep. that to happen. So, say you're on a mountain bike ride, mm-hmm. and it's a left-hand turn. Mm-hmm. And so, your natural inclination is to put the right pedal down mm-hmm. and try to bring your body over the bike some instead of leaning your bike your body with the bike. Mm-hmm. Now, while it's easier to get your body you know, further to the right as you're making the turn, if your outside pedal is down, it's not absolutely dependent on that. So long as you can get your weight far enough to the right, you don't need to put that pedal down. And I know from considerable experience, uh, when it comes to control in dicey situations, if one, if one foot is down, I have less control. Hmm. Well, here's another 
time, maybe I would forego putting the, the outside foot down. And that is when a left is followed by a quick right. In other words, you're just trying to shift really fast. In that case, I'm probably just going to leave my left foot forward. In other words, leave everything at nine and three o'clock and just lean back yeah. and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when when the turns need to be executed quickly or when there are berms involved. If you got berms, oh, you don't need that. You're probably not going to need that that lower outside foot. Yeah. But otherwise, I like the I like lowering that outside foot into a turn. If I can, I will, and I'll apply force that way. Yeah, yeah, I'm with it, you on that one, Hottie. It's still a pretty natural move for me, but I've noticed a lot of times that uh, if I'm feeling, you know, a little unbalanced or I, I'm not feeling as as well in control as I'd like, the moment I level the cranks out, I start feeling better. All right. An interesting technique. I, you know, I am totally self-taught, and this might be another an upcoming, very important question, which is, and I'll have to fig- think about the wording, and this will be some some other time. But to what degree are you a self-taught cyclist? Um, yeah, I am. Uh, you know, everything that I know is from friends and from trial and error. There is so much that I would still like to, you know, that I could probably benefit from some real professional guidance. So uh, another question, another time. But for for right now, this next week's very important question is this. You're half an hour away from home, and you're about to start a ride. You put in on, on all your stuff, and you discover you forgot your helmet. You need it back at home. You're half half an hour away from your uh, from home and your helmet. What do you do? Ride helmetless. Go back to your helmet. Just forget the whole thing. Don't ride at all. Or buy a new helmet, assuming that there is a bike shop in the near vicinity. So once again, hmm. uh, ride helmetless. Go back for your helmet. Forget the whole thing. Or buy a new helmet. We have tweeted out this poll on Twitter. You you can find that either on uh, the at Fat Cyclist uh, handle, the at Red Kite Prayer handle, and the at Paceline handle. And we should embed that question in the show notes as well, just to show that we are really on top of things. <laughs> Answer the question. We'll be uh, we'll be interested in what you would do. I have to admit that my answer is probably answer E, it depends, but we want you to sort of take out the, well, how important is this ride and is it a group and so forth, and just give us your general impression. You're going to do the ride anyway. You're going to say, never mind, I'm not going to ride at all. Helmets are that important. You're going to make a spend and burn an hour getting going back and coming back for your helmet are you going to spend some money and buy a new helmet? Because, you know, hey, you can always use a new helmet, right? Start thinking about your answers, guys. We'll talk about this one in the next baseline. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's get on to the next important thing. Because everything we talk about is important here on the baseline. And that is inner bike. Patrick, I understand that uh, you'll be going to Interbike next week and that it is the either Incredible Shrieking Interbike or, alternate name, the Teeny Weenie Interbike. <laughs> what is going on with Interbike? 
Oh, you know, the problem is that the business model has stopped working for the two most significant constituencies for the show, that being the manufacturers and the retailers. So there were two things that Interbike has traditionally done over the years. It was the form in which bike companies introduced their new product. You know, there was a time when Eurobike didn't exist. And there was a long time when Eurobike did exist in which it wasn't the big preeminent show. So that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Traditionally, yeah, everybody would introduce their new products at Interbike. And then the dealers who all showed up would write their preseason orders at the show. They would sit down, they would meet with their rep. I mean, every single booth at the show had tables and chairs and these order forms in triplicate and lots of ballpoint pens. You don't see that anymore. You know, if somebody's got a table, you know, there are three backpacks stacked up on it and, you know, a couple of bottles of water. It's totally different. All the preseason orders have been placed by now. And all the big product launches, they're going to happen in the month of September or August, whatever, have already happened. Nobody's going to introduce any more new products until probably Sea Otter. They're going to sit on them until then. So, you know, it, the, with those two goals or, or, or purposes utterly defeated, the show has really struggled for a number of years. I tell people that right now, Interbike serves me better than it does anybody else. And the purpose of Interbike was never about journalists. So that tells you there's a problem. Some years ago, I wrote a piece in which I said, you know, look, Interbike will always have the treks and the specialized and the giants pulling out and coming back in and pulling out again. The big guys can afford to do their own thing. And all the little guys who are buying the 10 by 10 booths are always going to pop in and out depending on what their capital is. But traditionally, Interbike was a place where you could be guaranteed that all those sort of mid-sized companies like Jameis and Felt and Scott and all these others, you know, that were big enough to have, say, a 20 by 40 booth, but not, you know, the whatever, 60 by 60 or whatever it was, they'd have a significant booth. All those companies didn't have the money to go and do their own event. And so you could always count on them to be there. And I think it was six years ago, maybe seven, I noticed that there were a whole bunch of those companies that weren't on the floor at Interbike. And I wrote at the time, okay, now we've got a problem. If Interbike isn't serving these companies well, we know the event is truly in trouble. And what are we faced with? Interbike, this is its last year in Las Vegas. Next year, it moves to Reno. Uh, Reno is a non-union hall, so all those expensive drage fees that the exhibitors have to pay are going to be less expensive. Hopefully, the hotels will be less expensive than Las Vegas. Vegas has been getting progressively more expensive in terms of accommodations over the last six, seven years. Uh, there was one year I paid $13 for my room, and that was splurging above the $9 room that I was offered. Uh, that was the year that the market crashed, uh, 08. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, things have changed a lot, and it, it will be interesting to see if next year it's better. But I don't have nearly as many appointments set 
uh, going into the show this year because a lot of the people that I would meet with simply aren't there. On one hand, that's kind of neat because it's going to give me more time to wander around some of those little 10 by 10 booths and see what's up there. But it's it's disappointing to know that you know, I'm not going to see felt. I'm not going to see specialized. I'm, you know, not going to see Jameis. I'm, you know, there are all these different brands that simply won't be there. And that's a bummer. I like seeing those guys. I've got a lot of friends. This is my annual chance to, to catch up with a bunch of people. Even that's not going to happen. So Hottie, how many times have you been to Interbike? Mm, I have been, boy, um, I think I've been uh, five times, half dozen times, something like that. Um, a couple times as a spectator, and then at least four times, you know, working the event either with Patrick. Uh, last year, I was there with Patrick and on behalf of another publication. Uh, I get, you know, maybe because my experience with the event uh, doesn't encompass as many years as some of the more veteran people around there, but I always got jazzed about being there. I mean, just being around all the product. Um, being around, learning new things about the business, about the people involved, I always got a real kick out of. Now, I'll say this. I did, I found it a little interesting that some of the vendors that Patrick and I would meet, I would notice just this lack of enthusiasm coming from these people. I'm always like, damn, you're in the goddamn bike business. We're like playing with toys here. Shouldn't you be like psyched? I mean, the opposite <laughs> in the spectrum, you've got like the head of Speedplay, Patrick, who mm-hmm. the man is just a nut for just one thing, pedals. And he's like the most enthusiastic dude you'll ever meet. But then we'd meet these other folks that just seem like they're going through the motions. And that was a little discouraging. And it probably gets all back to the fact that, you know, Interbike has lost some of its luster. Um, you know, this these meetings kind of get packed where you're jumping from person to person. There's the, the, the social angle, Patrick, it's kind of gone out of the event a little bit, would you say? It's a little less of a party and more of a, uh, yeah, we're all here type of thing. I mean, is that well, the there, aren't, you get? there aren't as many high-profile parties. Like the Sinclair party doesn't uh, doesn't happen anymore because Sinclair doesn't exist anymore. So, yeah, there have been some some changes that way. Um, and, yeah, it's it's really weird that, you know, to your point, there are companies that have lost... I don't even know what it is. Lost focus, uh, lost their sense of mission. Remember when we walked into the head booth and they didn't bring their marketing director? Yeah. I just, I walked out of there laughing. It's like, okay. um, Head is kind of a nerdy outfit. They're into wheels and aerodynamics. And Steve Head was that way. But still, yeah, they're trying to sell wheels and there should be a level of enthusiasm about that. And when two journalists walk in there, you should be like, hey guys, yeah, we'd love to show you our new stuff. Yeah, I know you don't have an appointment, but that's all right. You know, here's what we got going on and let us know if we can help at all. And here's a few brochures and what have you. Yeah, so it's a little... It's a little bizarre. Now, Interbike did try to pump things up with Cross Vegas and bring some excitement to the event that way. Have you been out to Cross Vegas, Patrick? Did you ever get to that Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I think I've been there every year it's happened. Uh, And I always always leave there totally jazzed that I went, but then completely stressed that, oh, now I need to go back to my room and write a post. And Mm -hmm. it's 11 o'clock at night. Yay! Well, and that's some of the other issue, too, for the journalists. Now, their deadlines, as opposed to being at the end of the month or whenever the next issue was coming out, it is that night. So work starts as soon as the meetings stop or are going on in between meetings. I mean, that's 
kind of the level that's going on there now. So again, that's why I say the social angle has kind of gone out of it, even from the journalists and the marketing folks, because you're jumping and you're just looking for the next story and trying to post the next story or take the next picture or get the next podcast interview or what have you. So yeah, it's there's there's less time to kind of sit and enjoy each other's company and maybe have a few beers because there are deadlines and there are other appointments to get to and there's this more of this cram feeling. So, but yeah. again, I Pat, Fatty, I if I was not if I did not have a full-time job right now, uh, or if I had any time off available to me, I'm new to my place of employment, I would be booking, sorry about that, I'd be booking a ticket to Las Vegas this second to be there to check out the stuff and to hang with Patrick and get some interviews and to see what's what's going to be new. You know, the three of us ought to go there together next year. Oh my gosh, yes. Mm-hmm. We should get a silly suit so that we're like uh, Siamese triplets or something and walk around the show that way. I'm not much of a silly suit guy. Oh, okay. I don't know. If- <laughs> now, Patrick, I, I will, know if- you know what? The one thing we did run into last year that was refreshing, with the, that was the Camelback gang at the outdoor demo. Remember these yeah. guys? They had a yeah. kiddie pool set up. They were swimming in it. Yuri was there. They were pumping music, playing beers. They were into the spirit of the event. So occasionally you see people still get it. But Yuri's a silly suit yeah, guy. And, and the outdoor demo does <laughs> is a little more kind of a pumped up scene. It's it's cool. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but I think when you're walking the floor, it, yeah, it's kind of stoic, you know? It's uh, a little more sterile in there for considering it is bikes. I have an idea for for the folks who are, it seems to be experiencing inner bike burnout. And that is, go and work in software for a couple <laughs> of years. All right? Come to yeah. some of the shows that I have been to. Uh, work on marketing software that software developers use to write other software. And then sell that to people who develop software. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not I mean, saying I'm not saying it's a terrible mind-crushing job. Except uh, for the fact in that a, it is in a mind, in a terrible mind-crushing industry. But I'm only not saying that because I'm a very polite person who would never say something like that. Um, but no, the fact uh, my point is this is the bike industry. It's it pretty stinking cool. The mm-hmm. coolest, yeah. most interesting industry in the world for people who more or less get each other. Um, it's easy to get tired and burned out on anything. I think maybe you know punching the reset button and you know go, and seriously go and see what some of the rest of the world is like. You might come back rejuvenated and perhaps a little more grateful for where you work and what you are doing. Having covered the electronic security industry Hmm. and having to write about burglar alarms and fire alarm systems and fire suppression systems and closed circuit television and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, I will never, ever, ever (laughs) complain about Interbike. This, uh, let's see here, this will be my 25th straight Interbike. Seriously? Yeah, the the first... The first uh, four years, first four years were Atlantic City and Philadelphia, and then since '96, everyone that's been on the West Coast. So, you know, I mean, even even when there were years where I didn't have distinct business to to attend to, I still went. You know, even just as a freelance journalist, I love the event. My enthusiasm. The only thing my enthusiasm has waned for 
is the thing that I never had any enthusiasm for in the first place, and that's Las Vegas. Hmm. Well, last time you'll have to go there for that. So that'll be Yay! interesting to see how it is next year. All right. Well, and I'm serious. Next year, we yeah. got to do a daily, daily podcast from the pace line every night. What could be finer? Someone sponsor us quick. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm, I would love that. It would be great fun. Yep. Uh, you just watch. We're going to make it happen. Three smart guys like us. How could it not? I think we're going to y- take this as a moment to go to a quick break. And when we come back, something a little bit inspiring right here on The Pace Line. We only get by by staying together and thriving and being strong. And Interbike provides us that opportunity. I want to give a round of applause to Interbike for putting us on and the people who are here at this show. And the pace line is back. Hottie, Patrick, and me, Fatty, going to talk about doing something good for a second. For the past several years, I have uh, sponsored or promoted an event called the 100 Miles of Nowhere. That was always something that was on fatcyclist.com, and I used it to uh, raise money for a number of really good charities. And people have been asking via Twitter, via email, Am I going to be doing the 100 Miles of Nowhere again this year? The answer is yes. And before I explain who we're going to be doing this, uh, or who we're going to be benefiting this year, because it is a fundraiser, I want to tell you a little bit about what the 100 Miles of Nowhere is. Uh, Hottie, Hmm. Patrick, do you know what the 100 Miles of Nowhere is? Have either of you ever done it? I haven't done it, but yeah, I absolutely know what it is because last year you posted about it on RKP. So there's that. Awesome. And so for those who don't know, it is what uh, is known as a race without a place. It is the silliest century you will ever do. And it is also the most convenient. The idea (laughs) is you... Uh, I, when I first started, it it started as a bet that I could ride my rollers, and I'm talking about true rollers, not a trainer, for 100 miles without ever getting off. Um, oh, oh uh, man. And, and I did it as a bet. Uh, I uh, watched Deadwood uh, pretty much the <laughs> entire series um, while riding my rollers. And the bet was uh, to uh, that certain people would pay up for Livestrong that I was raising money for at the time. And uh, I did it, and I got paid, and made a little bit of money. The next year, uh, I made the same bet, and some people wanted to join in. But they wanted to do it their own way. They didn't necessarily want to ride rollers for 100 miles. You know, it, it was a, okay, it's possible, fine, don't want to do it again. Some people wanted to ride a trainer. Some people said, well, what if I rode around the block? Or what if I rode a around a, um, a roundabout uh, for 100 miles? Or what if I did, and people started coming up with increasingly bizarre, interesting ways to ride a century close to home. The 100 miles of nowhere was born. And essentially, you pay up as if you were doing a regular race, usually around $90, 
And that money goes to the charity that I'm raising money for. And I'll talk about that in just a second. You get some swag like a t-shirt and a few nice little things just as if you had done a regular race. But of course, there's no waivers or anything like that because you're just going on a ride. So there's no overhead and all of the money that we raise winds up in the benefactor's uh, pocket. So it's really fun, it's really easy, and then I take the stories and videos that people would send in after doing their very crazy efforts and put them up on the blog. Now, of course, fatcyclist.com is now shuttered, but Red Kite Prayer is not. So we are going to collect stories about what you are doing, where you are riding, what it is like, why you wish you wouldn't have done it, and we're going to put those up there. It's going to be cool, just like it always has been. You know, and I, last I year, see- I got to say, my favorite was the guy who had to do it in the farm field. He decided, oh, was- I'm, I'm going to ride around a farm field. That was hilarious. That, to me, was the height of just pointless genius. That really was. It, it Truly, just a guy riding randomly around in a hoed, uh, uh, I guess I think it was a um, I forget what kind of uh, what kind of farm it was, but yeah, just a plowed over uh, farm in a fat bike, not going back and forth or around in circles, just randomly riding. His uh, his Strava was awesome. We've had people do this in a NASCAR track. I've had a guy ride a unicycle around his neighborhood. I had a person ride around his circular driveway. <laughs> More than like I I forget how many thousands of times he had to do that, and that's not easy to do. If you think about, you know, the the tight radius you have to keep to do that, you're never getting faster than like twelve miles an hour when you're doing that because you are always literally turning. And was he sponsored by Dramamine? Right. <laughs> oh man. So so some really crazy stuff as well as some very inspiring stuff. I've uh, I've had uh folks from our military do this in undisclosed locations that are very hot and sandy. I've had people do it on uh do it on uh destroyers. I've had people do this, you know, untold number of people do this in their basement. I've had people s- send in emails saying I'm a runner, not a rider. Can I do a marathon of nowhere where they, you know, run 26 miles on their uh, on their treadmill? You know, of course you can. I last year even had someone who did a uh, a rock wall nowhere where you know he he figured out what the equivalent of 100 miles would be doing you know doing rock wall climbing. Absolutely. Knock yourself out. Be crazy. Do fun, interesting stuff. Take video. Write a story. And this year. We are going to be doing this to benefit the Davis Finney Foundation. And this is a foundation that helps people with Parkinson's live well today. They provide free education programs and resources and serve people across the USA as well as internationally. Of course, Davis Finney is an amazing cyclist, has uh, all kinds of records. I I don't, do you know, do you know how many things, I mean, how many major events he won, Patrick? I don't. I honestly, I don't it, it, remember. He, he was north of 300 wins in the U.S. He's right. the winningest American cyclist of all time. His nickname back in the day was Cash Register. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah, and so I mean, someone with a someone who is fighting Parkinson's and who has a fantastic foundation as well, 
as a fairly talented son who is doing some racing right now. So to me, this felt like a fantastic year to help the Davis Finney Foundation fight Parkinson's. So there's going to be more details. We're going to be talking about this more on the pace line as well as on Red Kite Prayer. So look for that. Start thinking about when you might have a weekend to do this. There will be an official weekend. But the nice thing about the 100 miles of nowhere is if our weekend doesn't work out, you probably got another one of your own that will. So start thinking about where you're going to ride, what you're going to do. I kind of have an idea that my 100 miles of nowhere might be a tight little loop that includes a flow trail close to home this year. So, so it'll be a hard climb followed by a fun descent, and it'll be about 50 times that I get to do it. Oh my so, gosh, I just had a fresh idea. I thought I knew where I was going to do my, my 100 miles of nowhere but you just gave me another alternate idea that would be just completely crazy. Uh, crazy is a good thing when you're doing the 100 miles of nowhere. You want, hmm. you want to reveal what it is or you got to think on this one a bit? I'm probably going to stick with my original idea of just doing our dirt crit loop. It's a one mile loop. Uh, this is where we held our Wednesday dirt crits and doing it there. I thought that would be pretty fun and funny. But yeah, I just flashed on, well, I could do the pump track here in town. Oh, 100 miles of pump track. That would leave you with a completely smoked upper body as well as lower body, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd, well, actually, yeah, my legs would probably be fine at the end. I don't know that I'd finish 100 miles of pump track. I don't know that my upper body would get through it. And, and, and I wouldn't want to be a quitter. So. And that's entirely possible. Uh, some things, uh, some what might seem like initially an interesting and kind of funny uh, 100 miles to do, reveal that that little bump you got in your neighborhood one, uh, one block uh, ride on the 50th or 60th or 75th uh, go has turned up in, you know, is now, you know, 14 degrees and impossible to ride. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, little things become big things. Um, and getting them done can be, uh, you know, it, 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 it's pretty amazing the sense of accomplishment you can feel doing something as silly as this. And the good thing is, of course, supporting a really great foundation. So looking forward to the 100 miles of nowhere this year. More information coming very, very soon. In fact, Next episode of The Pace Line, I guarantee we'll have more. So, uh, excited for that. Uh, Hottie, I'm expecting you to come up with something good. Thinking about and, it now. Yep. All right. We'll talk more about it soon. Folks, if you, uh, if you have an idea, leave us a comment in the uh, article accompanying this episode of The Pace Line, and we'll read some of them on air. Maybe it'll get, some, get you thinking. Uh, love to share ideas because the crazier the better, the more fun. This is definitely a community event in spite of the fact that you're going to be doing it all by yourself. Moving on to the news. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that Oregon trail tax that mm. uh, we talked about most recently. Hottie, I hear you have some news on that. Yeah, Santa Cruz Bicycles has responded to Oregon's uh, controversial new bike tax with a promotion that promises to deliver thousands of dollars to mountain bike projects across the state. The company's dubbing this program the Oregon Trail Tax. Now, Santa Cruz, the bike company, will match the $15 per bike tax 
customers pay on every Santa Cruz and Juliana bike sold in the state starting September 1st, that was a few days ago, and the remainder of 2017. Proceeds will be split evenly between three trail advocacy organizations that build trails in the state, the Northwest Trail Alliance, the Oregon Central or the Central Oregon Trail Alliance, and Team Dirt. Now, this bike tax that we're talking about, it's part of Oregon's new transportation bill that adds $15 per bike on new bikes with 26-inch or larger wheels, so smaller bikes don't count here, that sell for $200 or more. The fees will be funneled into a fund called Connect Oregon that provides matching grants for commute bicycle infrastructure. That's good news, of course, for road cyclists and commuters, but it's doubtful that any of this $15 per bike fee will end up going towards mountain bike projects. So that's why Santa Cruz has stepped in and said, hey guys, what's fair is fair here, and if somebody buys a Santa Cruz bike, we're going to take that 15 bucks that people got to pay, even though it's a mountain bike and probably won't do much time in a commute in a in a bike lane, and we're going to take 15 bucks and, and match $15 on that tax and make sure that money goes towards trail advocacy. So Santa Cruz is uh, taking a little bit of, you know, somewhat controversial and bad news and said, look, we're going to try and spin this in a way that'll help mountain bikers specifically, even though, you know, they have to pay just like everyone else for a, for a bike tax fee. Hmm. Very cool. I'm uh, very cool of uh, Santa Cruz to be doing that. And next up, there was a guy who has it, it who is literally becoming a six million dollar man. Yeah, a six and a half million dollar man. In fact, six and a half million dollar. Yeah, man. and L, he's an LA cyclist. He suffered a major injury after striking a pothole. Uh, he's agreed to settle with the city of LA for six and a half million dollars, according to the lawsuit he brought wow. against the city in May of 2015. Peter Goodfroy was riding his bike on a poorly maintained street when he struck a large pothole. He lost control and slammed into the pavement, sustaining multiple broken bones and severe brain trauma. He's expected to have permanent disabilities from that crash, so he settled for $6.5 million. Now, one of the L.A. City Councilmen who voted unanimously to approve this settlement wants to ensure that other area cyclists don't suffer similar fates. So at the meeting where they approved the settlement... This councilman sponsored a motion mandating inspections of all major bike paths and bike lanes in the city, as well as a cost estimate for the repair. And look, this gets back to something I've harped on for a long time, especially in the city of L.A. The advocates and some city leader and city leaders go out of their way to announce new bike lanes and set aside money for new bike lanes and striping and sharrows and protected bike lanes and what have you. But in the process, they're ignoring what are dilapidated and terrible streets. And it's those bad streets, these potholes in this instance, that really trip us up and send us flying. The bike lanes are great and all, and they help separate us from the cars. But if you plow into a pothole or a bad crack or bad pavement, you're going to be screwed anyhow. You're going to crash. In fact, bad pavement may not make you crash. It may just make you move out into a lane anyhow and then be run over by a car. So I've always harped on this point especially in the city where i do a lot of riding fix the damn streets let's okay, fix well, streets let's focus on <laughs> making the streets better so i can ride over to the right where i belong i don't have to move out into traffic so i don't potentially get a front wheel hung up in a pothole and go flying like mr goodfroy do and sue the city for millions of dollars let's fix streets they're terrible in this town 
Okay. Now uh, a little, a little perspective on this. I don't disagree with you. I, I like seeing potholes fixed. I like seeing streets repaved. The money that pays for a new bike lane to be striped and that green paint, or say if they actually separate it and put up the little barriers in between those little flexi stick thingies, Mm -hmm. that money comes from, uh, it's usually, uh, matched federal funding that is only for building new stuff. It's, uh, it's not, it's not money that can be used for repairs. So, the funds that do those two things come out of two different pots. So when you see a bike lane striped, you can't say, well, they should have used that money to fix a pothole instead. It just, they're not allowed to use the money that way, as I understand it. Yeah, but the uh, energy and the lobbying used comes out of the same pot. And the energy and the lobbying for what money you go after can be used to chase down street repair money, pothole repair money, which the federal government also can help you with. And they're, they're happy to. So it's a matter of priorities, too. It's like, what are you going to pursue? Where are you going to put your hand out and ask for money? And and, and when the government does that, they have to say, okay, we're going to, we're just, we want decidedly, we want to be a bike lane city, so we're going to go after that kind of money. They want to help repair streets. They can do that, too. They can chase those dollars. And not only do cyclists benefits, but the people who drive cars in this town or any town do, too. I mean, it's one thing for a bicyclist to hit a pothole and get a flat tire but cars get untold amount of damage and and repair needs because city streets are in such you know terrible disarray so they end up banging into each other running through potholes or what have you too so uh, street repair goes a long way to helping a, a large number of people in my mind and i just like to see more of that happen because frankly i just get tired of dodging uh, obstacles on the streets around here sure sure i get that Spoken like someone who actually commutes by bike. <laughs> so let's move on to the Paceline picks. Uh, Patrick, as traditionally, uh, yeah. you go first. <laughs> okay, so within a bike around the corner, uh, my pick is for something that's going to actually happen at Interbike, and that's the Mechanics Challenge. This is a contest that's held with various challenges. I think last year we kind of guessed at, you know, in a silly way, what some of those challenges would be. The challenge is back this year. Um, It's going to happen over two days, uh, September 20th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then the 21st Thursday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And uh, the top four will compete in a semifinal round. And then those four will actually tackle uh, a new series of challenges in head-to-head, non-timed heat for the win. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, this will be, you know, easy to find. And it's, uh, you know, I saw some video of it last year. Uh, saw some pretty cool photos. I'm actually going to try to uh, carve some time out of my busy day to get by and watch it. Uh, and we'll have a link to more information about the Mechanics Challenge in our show notes. All right, fantastic. My paceline pick this time is Marcy Kimball, who I expect neither of you have ever heard of. Uh, nope. And probably most of our listeners have never heard of. 
But around here in uh, Utah County, Salt Lake City area, she is a climbing legend. She is one of the fastest women. She is a threat to win any of the Cat 123 races in anything that has a hill. Uh, I cannot hold her wheel in a climb. She has beaten me several times in the Rockwell relay in various uh, various times. Last a uh, couple of weeks ago, though, I want to point out that uh, she and uh, the people she was racing alongside passed me as I was starting the final hill in the Punisher um, where that you know, four mile, 12% grade thing. And I complained to her as she went, as she went by, I said, I sure hope that there's going to be water soon because I am out. She drifted back when I did this and held out her bottle. She had one bottle with one quarter, you know, there was one quarter filled at that point, in spite of the fact that there were people chasing her and she had a race that she wanted to win. She drifted back. I said, "Don't worry about it. You got to you got to race. Keep going." And I was lucky. There was uh, there was an aid station really just half a mile away. I was fine. The reason I bring all this up though is she was in pursuit of a new record last week in the Loda job. A new women's record was in her grasp when she hit a rock, went over the bars, and took a very hard fall, breaking uh, her collarbone in multiple places, broke a cheekbone from what I understand, and a brain bleed. She got really wrecked. So this is more or less a thoughts and prayers paceline pick for Marcy Kimball, a fast, nice person, incredible racer who has taken a hard fall. Hope you get back on the bike fast, Marcy. And I'm going to let you finish up, Hottie. All right, guys. Uh, you know, I've really uh, loved and enjoyed doing these paceline picks. And for the most part, my process involves uh, scripting them out. I write these out. They've really become essays to a certain level. But uh, this week, I decided to take a different approach and actually uh, record my paceline pick. So here it is. Hello, paceliners. Hottie here in the paceline test kitchen. I'm recording this paceline pick on what is national chocolate milkshake day and it's a good thing because milkshakes have at least something to do with my paceline pick you see as far back as i can remember i've always loved milkshakes in fact when i was nine years old i made my local little league team we were the board of realtors and mr sterling was my coach now every time we won a game mr sterling would take us out for Foster Freeze. That's the, you know, the burger fry uh, shake place. All my teammates would all get the standard fare, maybe a hot dog, a burger, fries, what have you, and a Coke. I would order a soft serve ice cream cone and a chocolate shake. That was my meal post Little League game. No matter who we managed to beat, whether it be the Kiwanas or the Alex or whatever team we managed to slaughter that day. And we won a lot of games, so we went out for a lot of Foster Freeze, and Hottie drank a lot of milkshakes that spring as a nine-year-old in Little League. And ever since then, I've always loved milkshakes. I mean, whenever I've been out for fast food, burgers, fries, it's always been a milkshake to go with. And I imagine it had to do with the, you know, it's cold, it feels good on the stomach, you know, it's kind of like a drink and a meal 
all in one, at least the way that's the way I saw it. And now as a 53-year-old, I mean, you can't go around drinking, you know, four or five chocolate. Well, I guess suppose you could, but it wouldn't be a good idea to be drinking four or five chocolate milkshakes every week. So I've transformed a little bit to try and make it a little more healthy. And now what I do is I make smoothies. Okay, smoothies. Kind of boring, right? But still, you get the, the coolness, the texture, the, the full feeling that you would get out of a chocolate milkshake. You can get that in a smoothie. And one of the smoothies I typically make, and make frequently, so I can drink a lot of them, is a green smoothie. This is a vegetable smoothie. I know it sounds a little gross, mixing vegetables up in a blender uh, until it reaches a creamy texture. But I think I've got this down to where uh, it, it tastes pretty good, and I get that, sat- that milkshake satisfaction in the process. So now, as part of a Paceline demonstration, I will make for you, the Paceline listener, my green smoothie. It starts with, and I don't do exact measurements, but it starts with a handful of broccoli, uh, one chopped carrot, um, a good glug of almond milk, and I just do a glug, you know, it's all estimation here, Uh, a handful or maybe two handfuls of spinach, Uh, one frozen banana. Now, I'll substitute the banana for avocado if I've got that, but one frozen banana. I find the banana or the avocado give the smoothie its smoothness, if you will. Uh, For a fat, um, sometimes, again, it's avocado. Once in a while, I'll use a chia uh, flaxseed mix. Today, I'm going to do something more delicious, and that would be almond butter, a good lump of that. And for protein... I put one scoop of vanilla-flavored protein powder in this thing. Bam. Those are the main ingredients. Oh, wait a second. I got a little sweetener. So, um, agave syrup. Um, you could use honey, too. It's fine. So, a good glug of that. <laughs> you love the, pre- uh, the precision and all this. A glug of this, a handful of that. Exactly. And then, of course, some ice. Okay. On goes the lid. And we power things up and start blending. Okay, now, if I've done this correctly... This smoothie will barely pour out of the blender. And this one looks pretty good. Nice and thick. And yes, very green. So, you may be thinking my Paceline pick, of course, is a smoothie. Or a milkshake, for that matter. Uh, In fact, it is not. It is this wonderful piece of equipment you've just listened to. Get yourself one of these, folks. This is my Paceline pick. A Vitamix Professional Series 300. You won't regret this thing. It is so powerful, you can make smoothies, and I think it'll cut your lawn, too. That's more watts than you'll ever put out on a bicycle. (laughs) All right, guys, that's it. The uh, Vitamix Professional Series 300. Um, 
Splendor is my paceline pick this week. A fabulous, fabulous machine. Chop anything in it. You can make soup. It will spin things so fast, so violently, that it will heat material up. Like, you could put raw vegetables in the thing, like tomato and so forth, and just crank the thing on high, and it creates heat. So you'll have hot soup without even having to cook the soup. That's how good it is. I have never heard such enthusiasm for a blender before, except for perhaps from the Will It Blend guy. So <laughs> Better than a magic bullet. Much better. Much stronger. Oh, the Pace Line, the podcast where we make you listen to a blender. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is going to be a wrap for this episode of The Pace Line. If you haven't been to iTunes to rate and review us, please do. And if you have, thank you so much. We owe you a poll. For Hottie and Patrick, I'm Fatty. And this is the pace line. Patrick, you're going to be living on energy food next week. I don't know how you can. You should be eating a salad right now. Uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I don't have any salad stuff here. So there's that. Oh. Well, unfortunately, there's no such thing as grocery stores. Grocery stores.